You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. So with that said, um, we have been this fall in a set of sermons called Parable, where we have been working through the stories of Jesus and really just asking God to use these stories from Jesus to make us look more and more like Jesus. And today we're going to take uh, two parables in Luke 15. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Luke 15, um, we're going to be spending our time in these two parables. And in a lot of ways, I want you to think about the next two weeks in the life of our church like a mini-series. It's a series within the larger series. So we've got the parable thing going on, uh, but we're going to take these two parables in Luke 15, the first two parables in this chapter, and do a mini-series that we're calling Who's Your One? Who's Your One? This is what we're going to be lingering over and thinking about for the next two weeks. And we're just praying that the Lord would take that phrase and really just embed it into our soul, that he would set that phrase before us, and that that would be a phrase that would wake us up at night praying, uh, that it would produce some anguish and an ache in our heart to see people meet Jesus. Uh, We're just praying that the Lord would use that little phrase to do these sorts of things. And this little mini-series, Who's Your One?, I think comes at a perfect time for us as a church family. If 2020 has been anything, it has been a year where minor things, relatively minor things in the grand sweep of history and the world, relatively minor things have become major to us. It has been a year of a thousand distractions. I mean, you just look at your own life and probably what you have given your life to thinking about and time and attention to this year. It's been a year that's given us a million hills to die on. It's been a year where the church of Jesus Christ, I would just say this is true for generally the church in America uh, right now. It has been a year uh, that the church has dealt with an uncommon amount of division and strife. And, you know, as a quick aside there, anytime a church is dealing with division and strife, when we've got time to fight against one another, and with one another, um, it's a good bet that we have stopped gazing upon and giving our life to the things that matter most. It's a good bet. When we just, when we find all sorts of times to go at one another that we just stopped thinking about and and holding before us the things that, that matter most in life. And I can just tell you this, in 11 years of pastoring Stonegate, uh, this has been a unique season of need in the life of our church. It's been a unique season where we have needed Jesus to grab us by the face, to to lift up our chin, and to turn our gaze toward the big things, the most weighty things in life. And this is, in a lot of ways, what we're just asking the Lord to do over the next two weeks, is that the biggest things in life would be set before us to stare at and consider, and that we could then, as a church family, reorient our life, not around minor things, but about the major things of life. Now, to do that, Luke 15 is our chapter. This is where we're going to be spending the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, Luke 15 is an amazing chapter in the Bible. It contains three parables. And for the next two weeks, we're going to spend time in the first two parables, and then we're going to turn our attention to that last um, third, really probably Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And I love what J.C. Ryle says about this chapter. He he says it like this. He says, there's probably no chapter of the Bible that's done greater good to the souls of men. 
That, that's Luke 15. There's probably no chapter in the Bible that's done more good for the heart of human beings than this particular chapter. And I'm just praying that by the time we finish studying this over the next few weeks, that we would find that to be true, that God would meet us over this text and in this chapter to do our hearts and our souls Good. So today, my goal is simple. I, I want to take these first a couple of parables that you just heard read, and, and I want to just make a few observations from these first two parables. I want to give you three truths that, that these parables reveal. Three truths that these first two parables reveal. And here's the first one. These first two parables in Luke 15 reveal the only, the, the only two categories that really matter. The, the, these two parables show us that there are some categories that we need to get straight, that, that come straight from the Bible, and these two categories, in the end, ultimately, in a billion years from now, these are the only two categories that are really going to matter. Now, think about all the ways that you classify and organize and sort of understand people. And we all have a lot of these sort of ways of classifying and categorizing people. It just sort of helps us understand the world and take in uh, the world. But, but there's all sorts of these ways. There is male and female. There is Democrat and Republican. There's young and old. There's bad and good. There's rich and poor. There's black and white and brown. There's all of these ways that we have of trying to classify and understand the world there is and the people that make up the world. But Jesus in Luke 15 undercuts our whole classification system. He says that all the ways you're trying to classify people, all of those ways in the end are superficial. But in this passage, Jesus walks us through our superficial categories all the way into the two categories that in the end really matter. And here are the two categories, lost and found. In a billion years from now, those are the categories that are really going to matter. Lost and found. Those are the two categories that get right down to the root, lost and found. Let's take that word lost first, lost. That word lost is not our word. It's not a word that we made up. It's a word that Jesus uses, that Jesus uses. It's his word. You see it pop up throughout this parable. There's a lost sheep. There's a lost coin. If you go to that third parable, there's a lost son. That is Jesus's word. He's the one that is setting before us that word, that word lost, that, that category of lost. And Jesus is using that word lost as a picture for the human condition. When we see that word lost, we're, we're supposed to get in our mind, when we come out of the womb, this is who we are and what we are. This is the category that we occupy. We are among the lost. It's, it's a way for Jesus to describe the human condition. And here's the human condition. Because of our sin, we're lost. And if we remain lost, we will perish forever. I want to say that one more time. And, and what we're about to talk about is so heavy. It is so sobering. Jesus is using the word lost to describe the human condition. Because of our sin, we are lost. And if we remain lost, we will perish forever. Everyone who stays in the category of lost will perish forever. I, I was sitting on my back porch last night, just lingering over this word lost, 
and just feeling last night so frustrated. Like, how do, how do I find words to describe the weightiness of this one word, lost? Of what the Bible is trying to convey? How do you, how do you find words to describe such weighty things? Think about this word, perish, with me. All who remain lost will perish forever. Think, let's think about this word, perish. Uh, in the scriptures, that word perish or perishing is used in one of two ways. There's two ways that word perishing or, or to perish is used. Uh, one way is to die physically. So this is in Mark chapter 4. Uh, the disciples are in a boat and a storm is raging and Jesus is asleep down in the bottom of the boat. And uh, they wake Jesus up and they say to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care that we are about to perish? In other words, Jesus, don't you care that we are about to die in this storm? It's a way of describing physical death. That's one way the Bible uses the word perishing. But there's another way that the Bible uses the word perish or perishing. And the second way is to describe spiritual or eternal death. Not physical death. That is the light way the Bible, you know, uses the word perish. But there is the most weighty of ways, and it's used to describe a spiritual or eternal death. This is John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, uh, that whosoever believes in him, listen to this, will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, think about the contrast in that verse. Here's the contrast. On one side, there is everlasting life. There is life forever with God. That's, that, that's on one side. Then on the other side, there's this word, perish. Or you could translate it, everlasting death. Those are the two options. Everlasting life, or we remain in our lostness and we perish forever, everlasting death. To perish in the Bible, according to Jesus, means to be cut off from the presence of God forever. Forever. And gosh, I can't say that without trembling. That word perishing means that when a person dies apart from Jesus, in their lostness, they will spend forever in a real place called hell, created for real people, created for all of those who persist in their rebellion against God, who persist in their lostness. Man, that God would just turn our attention to these sobering, weighty, eternal realities. It's a sobering thing to read the New Testament, in particular the words of Jesus, because Jesus doesn't shy away from these sort of weighty realities. Uh, listen to him talk in Mark chapter 9. Jesus is urging us to fight against temptation in Mark 9. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, well, do this, cut it off. Why? Because it's better for you to enter life, to enter life eternal life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. There's our word. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then listen to how Jesus describes perishing. 
hell forever. He says, where their, worm, where their worms is not, where the worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus' description of what it means to perish. It's his description of hell. And listen, Jesus has a lot to say about hell. If you read the Gospels, you're going to find Jesus talking about these weighty things a lot. Jesus has a lot to say about hell, but our culture hates to hear it. Our culture has no room for the wrath of God. It has no room for hell. And here's one of the problems with our culture. Those that are lost mistake the delayed wrath of God for no wrath. But we make that mistake. We make this mistake to think that if God is delaying in his wrath, that God has no wrath. And that is a deadly mistake. If you want a picture of life in this world, here's, here's what life in our lostness looks like. It looks like building a house and living your life on a volcano not knowing that that volcano is an active volcano. And one day, when it's too late, the volcano of God's wrath will erupt. And, and Jesus is saying here, it's better to lose limbs in this life than to perish in the next. This is what Jesus is trying to convey to us, the weight of these eternal realities. Or take Paul. You can't read Paul without being reminded of these sort of huge, weighty things. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, here's what Paul says. He says, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And then listen, when Jesus comes back, what Paul says is going to happen inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Is that not a sobering text to consider? Paul is saying when Jesus returns, this is the future of all of those who are lost. They will perish forever away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Can we linger there for a moment and just realize that everyone in the category of they, they will suffer punishment. Everyone in the category of lost, they have names. They live in this city. They live in your neighborhood. They work with you at your job. They go to school with you and sit in your classroom. They're a part of your family. And I just want us to feel the, the sobriety of this. The, the Bible is not playing games. It is, it is helping our eyes come open to the eternal destination of human beings, that, that either a person will experience the affection and warmth and welcome of God for all eternity, or a person will experience life without God. They, they will perish. They will experience the righteous wrath of God, the displeasure of God forever. This is what the Bible is trying to, to bring our hearts open to seeing, to trying to acclimate us and reorient us around. Church, if 
Hell is real and eternal and terrible, all of which the Bible says it is. And if all that's keeping our neighbors and our family members and our friends and the millions of unreached people on this planet from hell is this thin line called death, then it's just, church, it's got to do something to us, to you and to me. It's got to put in us a deep longing to see people who are lost found, amen? I mean, it's got to affect us in this way. And that introduces us to the next category. There's the lost and there's the found. Those are the only two categories that end up mattering, lost and found. A found person has been rescued by Jesus. They've been adopted by God, brought into the family of God. Wrath is no longer waiting for them. Just the warm welcome of God in this incredibly bright future called heaven that he's prepared for them. Listen, there is no greater thing, there's no more important thing that could be said about a human being than they have been found by God. There's nothing more important than that. They have been found by God. There's only the lost and the found. Now, think about this with me. There are, are right now over seven billion people on this planet, and there are only two categories. The lost who will perish forever if they remain in their lostness, and the found those who will be forever with God. Those are the only two categories. There's no third option. And one of the things I'm just praying for all of us right now is that God would help us feel that deep in our bones. There is no third option, lost or found. That's the first thing this parable shows us. Here's the second thing this parable reveals, is it shows us, it reveals to us the aching heart of Jesus for the lost. The aching heart of Jesus. Look at verse 3 and 4. So he told them this parable, and I just love verse 4. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, there, there's one sheep that is lost, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, when you think about these parables that we're reading in Luke 15, before these parables have anything for us to do, they first have something for us to see. These parables are trying to open our eyes to see the heart of God. And here is the first thing this parable wants you to see. It's, it's the aching heart of Jesus for the lost. Think about this passage, these parables, as a door. And these parables open the door and invite you into the heart of God for you to come and explore and discover what the heart of God is like. And when you come into that door, into the heart of God, what you find is a heart that is aching for the lost. Now, what is under that ache? It's this. A couple of things. Under that ache, this passage shows us, is a love for lost sheep. This passage shows us that in the heart of God, there is a love for lost sheep. Jesus loves lost sheep. Look at verse 4 again. I'm just going to read this again to you. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
Now, when you, when you read through that parable, all of these parables, we, we are meant to see through the picture of a, of a shepherd all the way into the aching heart of Jesus for the lost. We're supposed to see the heart of Jesus, of Jesus who loves lost sheep. If you were to put a billion bars of gold, it's right there, and then right beside that billion bars of gold, you were to put one lost sheep, and then we to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, which of those two do you want? The, the billion bars of gold or the lost sheep? Which one of those do you want? Just impulsively, reflexively, Jesus would say, give me the lost sheep. That's what I want. Compared to a billion bars of gold, this is what is of extreme value. Jesus loves lost sheep. And so I just want to take a moment here today. If you are in this room, you're listening to us online, and you know you are far from God, you know that you are not inside the family of God, you know that you are lost. I want you to hear from this passage, Luke 15 today, Jesus just look at you and say, even in your lostness, I love you. I value you, I care for you. You are worth more than what words can convey. You are more valuable to me than a billion bars of gold. No one else may think you're valuable, but God is looking at you right now and saying, in this passage, you're valuable to me. So valuable that I would give my life to you. That, that's how valuable you are to me. He's looking at you right now and saying, my heart has a loving ache in it. And that loving ache is for you. It's for you. In church, this passage is a picture of the heart of Jesus. But church... In this passage, Jesus is showing his heart so that he can then give his heart to us. He, church, he wants us to have his aching heart, his heart that loves lost sheep. So can we just take a moment now to ask the question, can you find in your heart an ache for the lost? a loving ache? Do you love lost things? Do you love them? Do you love lost sheep? Can you find that ache in your heart? It's an interesting thing. In Romans 9, Paul, he says this. Now just think about this statement. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's a huge statement, isn't it? He's saying, unceasing anguish, sorrow, that, that is just making up and, and, and bubbling up out of my heart. Now, ask yourself, what would create that impulse? What would put that sort of deep soul anguish, deep soul sadness in the heart of this man? And here's what Romans 9 shows us. Here's why Paul is in deep anguish. Paul's people are perishing. The people of Israel are lost, and he knows if they remain in their lostness, they will perish forever. And that is producing in him this deep anguish in his soul. Jesus has given Paul his ache, and Paul now feels that ache deep down in his heart. And church, I think this is one of the problems in, in, in just the church at large. 
And not just our church, but just the church of Jesus at large. I think this ache, this sort of deep soul sadness, this deep anguish of, of heart for, for lost things to be found is strangely absent in too much of Jesus' church. And church, I don't want that to be true of us. I want us to receive that aching heart from the Lord. Don't you want to see lost things found? Don't you want to see people who are far from Jesus lost, who will perish forever if they remain in their lostness, rescued by the grace of Jesus? Man, I, I just so badly want to see hundreds and thousands of those stories. Don't you want to see that, church? And one of my prayers for us today is that Jesus would just grace us with the gift of that ache. That we would find in us a burning love for lost things. Jesus loves lost sheep. But he doesn't just love lost sheep. That love and that loving ache for lost sheep moves Jesus to pursue lost sheep. This is what Jesus does. He, he loves lost sheep, and Jesus pursues lost sheep. Look at verse 4 again. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? And then listen to this phrase. Just, you might want to underline th this statement. And go after the one that is lost. And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, again, this, is, this passage is a picture. We're supposed to see through this passage all the way up into the heart of God. And one of the things that this passage is picturing for us is salvation. It's just telling us the story of the gospel that like sheep, we have all gone astray. We've gotten into trouble that we can't get ourselves out of. But Jesus, the good shepherd, sees us in our trouble and he goes after us. Amen? Where would we be apart from the pursuit of Jesus in our life? He pursues us in our perishing. Right? This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his own beloved son to die for our criminal deeds. Right? He, he comes after us in our perishing. On that Friday, a couple of thousand years ago, Jesus perished in our place, our sin was placed on him and God's wrath swallowed Jesus whole. That's what happened on Friday. But on Sunday, thank God, Jesus rose in victory. Amen? Death, sin, and Satan lay shuddering beneath the feet of Jesus. And the door to a right relationship with God now was thrown open. So that all those who come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith... no longer have hell in their future, wrath in their future, perishing in their future. Now what awaits them is the warm welcome of God. The gospel announces the good news that Jesus has come to find the lost, to rescue the perishing. Or in Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's the heart of Jesus. Or look at this second parable. Look at verse 8. When it says, or what woman having lost 10, or having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. 
Again, we are meant to see through this passage. This passage is just a picture. It's a picture of, a, of the heart of God, of a God who relentlessly and diligently and earnestly runs after the rebellious, who seeks what is lost. It's a picture of the pursuit of God for prodigals. I mean, just think about what this picture is showing us. We are meant to picture God down on his hands and knees, a flashlight out. The house is torn apart as he seeks after what is lost. It is a picture of the pursuing grace of God. In church, Jesus wants to give us that heart. He wants to give us that, that heart that loves lost things. And then a heart that allows that loving ache for the lost to lead us in pursuit. That, that we would be the people down on our knees, flashlight out, turning over the house to find what's lost. And church, I want to be clear on this. We as a church family will never have a sustained pursuit of the lost without first a loving ache for the lost. We'll never do it. A sustained pursuit requires a loving ache. I mean, think about all the reasons we don't open up our mouth and talk about Jesus more to people. I mean, just in your own life, think about the many reasons. And we all have a hundred reasons why we don't do that. Um, it, for one, it's scary. Fear is probably right there at the top of the list. It's scary to open up our mouth and talk about Jesus. We're putting relationships at risk. It's a scary thing to do that. Um, even Paul in Ephesians 6, he says to the church in, in Ephesus, he says, pray for me. Now, now, why is he asking them to pray? He says, so that I would have the courage that... that I'll open up my mouth. When God gives me opportunity, I'll open up my mouth and talk about Jesus. Pray for me to have courage to do that. And if Paul needs courage, you can pretty much bet we're going to need courage. Amen? I mean, it, it's, it's a scary thing to do that. Fear keeps us from doing that. Um, intertwining your life with people who are lost is inconvenient. It, it's hard. It, re, it requires time and energy and effort and sacrifice. And there is only one way through all of that difficulty, all of those reasons. There's only one way through it for us to receive an ache from Jesus that is big enough to swallow up every other obstacle. For the ache to be so deep that it outweighs every other thing in our life. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what we need as a church this is what we're asking Jesus to give us today. That deep ache. God, help me love people who are lost so that I would then pursue them in their lostness. God, give me your heart. And then this, these parables reveal one more thing that I want you to see today. One more thing. These first two parables, and really all the parables in Luke 15, reveal what brings joy to the heart of God. What brings joy to the heart of God? Um, look at these uh, two parables in Luke 15 again. It says, the man finds the sheep, and then look at verse 6. It says, and when he comes home, he's got the sheep around his shoulder, and he's coming home, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then look in verse 9. The woman finds the coin, and when she finds it, 
Verse 9 says, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now what is all this celebration pointing to? We're meant to see through this sort of celebration, gathering your friends and all that, all the way up into the heart of God. Look at verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All three parables end in a consistent way. They all end in celebration, and it's showing us something about the heart of Jesus. It's showing us that the heart of Jesus erupts for joy when lost things are found. That Jesus' heart erupts from, for joy when people go from perishing to rescue. I mean, a party starts in the heart of God every time that happens. So let's ask ourselves, does our heart erupt with joy when lost things are found? Does it erupt for joy? If you want to see how deep the ache for the lost goes, just ask yourself this question. How high does joy go when lost things are found? When lost people are rescued? How, how high does the joy go? That's one of the best litmus tests for how deep your ache for the lost is. Uh, last Wednesday, our family was at a state cross-country meet up in Oklahoma. My niece was running in it. And I don't know if you've ever seen or kind of watched, uh, tried to watch a cross-country uh, sort of meet, but it's really hard to do. It's not a spectator sport right? And so it's like everybody's on the line and you're trying to figure out where are we going to go to watch these people run, right? And uh, there's typically just a few places you can see people as they're coming in and out of woods and on this sort of uh, track that they're, they're running on. And so uh, the race is about to start and my whole sort of family and extended family, we're all there and we all just make the mad dash to find a place to try to get a sneak peek at this race. And we all kind of get to our place and that's when we realize Oh no, Eva, our nine-year-old, is lost. No one has her. Now, those moments are always so scary because you're 99% sure she's just fine, but there's a 1% chance that she's abducted, right? So it it is terrifying. Those moments are so terrifying. So we have 10 minutes of all-out searching. I mean, if you're a parent, you know those sort of moments of parental desperation right? And that's what this moment was. It was a moment of parental desperation. We are trying to find Eva. Where is she? And we can't find her. We we searched for 10 minutes and Eva has not turned up. And then I get a call from Laura that says, I found her. It is amazing the height of joy that those two words produced. She's found. I mean, I'm telling you, a little party erupted in my heart right there. It was amazing, right? Now, why did a, did a party erupt right there in my heart? Well, the height of joy is determined by the depth of the ache. When you feel a deep ache for what's lost, when that thing is found, the height of joy is amazing. J- joy just naturally erupts in your heart. And this is one of the ways that we know a loving ache for the lost exists in the heart of God, because when the lost is found, joy erupts in the heart of God. And in the same way, here's how we know if a loving ache exists in our own heart. It's when the lost is found, joy naturally erupts in us. 
And Stonegate, may we have moments around here of amazing joy, of just a party starting around here because we just can't contain the joy that's, that's happening in our soul. But that only happens when we first feel the depth of the ache for lostness. Oh, that God would give that to us. Now, I want to end here and kind of close up here. Uh, you should have on your seat a little card that looks like this. It says, who's your one? Who's your one? And I want you to take that out. And I just want you to look at it. <clears throat> you can kind of flip through that card. And who's your one? Uh, this little mini series, this little mini campaign within the larger sort of parable set of sermons. Uh, it's, it's really coming with a very straightforward ask. And this ask is going to every single person in our church family. And the ask comes in two parts. It's a two-part ask. Here is the first part of the ask, is that you would pray. That's part one, to pray. To ask Jesus to give you one person, one person who is far from him. To, to pray, to ask the Lord, to listen to the Lord as he gives you one person, not a hundred people, not 50 people, not 10 people, but, but one person. We're asking you to pray and listen to the Lord for one person who is far from him. Now, this is your homework for this week. We're giving you this card this morning so that you can slide this in your Bible. And every day when you open up your Bible to read it, that you would look at this card and you would pray and ask the Lord to give you a sense of who is that one person who is far from him. That Jesus would have you prioritize. Who is that one person? Then next week, we're going to have an amazing moment together. Uh, together, we are going to bring all of our ones before the Lord. We're going to pray for them. And we're going to offer them to the Lord, asking the Lord to break through every barrier that exists between him and them. So we're going to have that amazing moment next week right here in this room. But that's your homework this week, is to, is to be prayerful about who is that one. Now, I just want to say a quick word to families. If, if you've got kids in your house, just, this is a great moment to leverage in the life of your family. Uh, last night, I gathered all of our kids around the dinner table, and we just had a moment of thinking about these things of talking about heaven and hell and what it means to be lost and what it means to be found. And if a person remains in their lostness, they will perish forever. And then we started talking about who's in your classroom. There's only two categories. Let's talk about all of your friends. All of your friends in the end only exist in, in one of two categories. We just started thinking and talking about this and we started praying about who their one might be that the Lord would give them and talk to them about who that one person would be. So that's step one. The first ask is to pray, to listen to Jesus. Who would be your one? Step one is to pray. Step two is to pursue, to pray and to pursue. Now by pursue, here's what I mean. That by the end of 2020, you will initiate a spiritual conversation with that person a conversation about Jesus, that you'll initiate that conversation. So pray, who's your one? Then pursue to initiate a conversation about Jesus. That's the ask, to pray and to pursue. And by the way, when we're initiating spiritual conversations, it requires a real attentiveness to the Holy Spirit that lives in us, to, to talk to us, to lead us. We cannot force anyone into faith, amen? 
That, that is not how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. So our goal is in every moment with every person to be faithful to the particular thing right now in this moment that Jesus would want to do in their heart, to pray and to pursue. Now, I want to be real uh, clear now on the goal. There's a really clear goal that we have over the, really, the, from now to the end of the year, as we kind of step into who's your one. Here is the clear goal. It's 100% participation across our church family. That every single person who calls Stonegate home would be in on this. Every single one of us in on developing who's your one, praying and pursuing. And so I just want to give you like a ton of freedom when you're chatting with people from Stonegate and you're bumping into them and you see them at the grocery store, or you're in your home group over the next few, it's just, you, feel free to ask, who's your one? Who is it? How's that conversation going? I just, I would love for a, just hundreds of those sort of moments to happen across our church family in the upcoming weeks. And Stonegate, as we begin to pray for and identify that one, as we begin to pursue them, can we just beg the Lord to turn those conversations into conversions? That, that lost things would be found, that people who are perishing would be rescued. Can you imagine the fruit Jesus might want to produce with a couple of thousand of us having a couple of thousand conversations with people who are far from Jesus? Can you imagine the baptisms that might happen next year? The sort of steps that Jesus is going to have people take in and around us that, that are far from him. Can you imagine what Jesus might want to do with this? So let me end with this. Years ago, I read this small paragraph from Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors in church history. And, and I'm praying that on some level, it would, it would embody the ache that we as a church feel that this would be true for us, that this paragraph would describe your heart, it would describe my heart, it would describe our church's heart. Listen to what he says. He says, if sinners be damned, if sinners are going to remain in their lostness and perish forever, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish... Let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go to hell unwarned and unprayed for and unpursued. Amen. May that be true of us. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to ask the Lord to speak to you now, for the Spirit of God to press in the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. How would the Lord have you respond today? Well, for some of us in the room, the truth is we're lost. 
There's never been a moment where we have pushed our life across the line with Jesus. And the Bible is clear, if we remain in our lostness, we will perish forever. And I don't want that for you. And so today, God has sovereignly arranged, He has orchestrated a thousand details to create this moment where you would hear the good news of Jesus, you would be in this room with these people with this opportunity. And this is the moment God has arranged for you uh, to, to push your life across that line with Him, to make that decisive decision for Jesus, to, to turn from all of your sin and to throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And just there where you are, if that's you, you can cry out to God in the best way you know how. If you're sitting in your living room right now, you can cry out to God. And you this morning can go from lost to found, from perishing to rescue. Cry out to God. And for the rest of us, oh, that God would press into us the ache. So God, would you do it? God, would you take this little season in the life of our church and would you lift up our chin and turn our attention up to the biggest things? Oh God, would you, would you give us your heart? Would you gift us your aching heart? God, we want it as a church. We are standing here, here today with our arms open, our heart open, asking you, our God, to give us more of your heart. We want to love lost sheep like you, oh God. We want to pursue lost things like you, oh God. So would you take us there? And God, I pray that in the upcoming months, Father, we as a church family would have a lot of parties. God, that we would have many occasions to celebrate and for joy to erupt in our lives. Oh God, would you do it? And it's in your good name that we ask it.